In this uh, winter series of sermons, uh, we've become aware of numerous aspects of John's rather remarkable apocalypse. We already know and agree that the book is difficult to understand and interpret and to preach. We've got fantastic imagery, visions, symbols, numerology, surreal beasts, and sea monsters. Out of 66 books in the Christian scriptures, probably none has provoked more emotions, more readings, and perhaps misreadings and controversy. We also know that the apocalypse is a multi-genre piece. It's an apocalypse, a disclosure, and it comes in the form of a circular letter, and that it delivers at numerous points prophecy. And this multi-genre is itself a challenge and a paradox. The book is written as an open letter to be heard in multiple Christian gatherings, but it employs the hidden language of apocalyptic symbol and myth rather than, say, theological appeal and reasoning. We know, too, that John's apocalypse has had difficulty securing and holding its status in the canon. In the third century, Presbyter Gaius of Rome and Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria treated it with some suspicion. In the fourth century, Cyril of Jerusalem forbade its public and its private reading. Chrysostom and Eusebius are not clear whether Revelation belongs in the canon. And at one point, Martin Luther said, Revelation is neither apostolic nor prophetic. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. John Calvin wrote a commentary on every other book in the New Testament except Revelation. The Eastern Orthodox lectionary does not include any readings from Revelation, and frankly, Anglicans and Catholics were a bit minimalist on that score as well. We've also heard already in this winter series that John's apocalypse is very popular today. It continues to generate vast realms of speculation by preachers, authors, interpreters, and filmmakers and musicians. Judy has already referenced Hal Lindsay's 1970s late great planet Earth, to which I would add, from my own teenage band's pathetic attempts to cover numerous Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill songs. And of course, we can't overlook America's most popular bestseller in the apocalyptic genre, Jerry B. Jenkins, and his co-author, Tim LaHaye, who have turned the Left Behind fiction series into a multi-million dollar enterprise. I'll let you Google all that goes with that. Here's something else you may want to Google or not. Wikipedia lists over 200 separate pages in the category of apocalyptic video genre. Some of these games draw directly, if loosely, from John's apocalypse. Now, whether this makes the church's contemporary readings of Revelation more or less difficult, I think it's a little hard to tell. So, to our winter series of Revelation sermons, today we add chapter 18. Chapter 18 sits at the heart of two and a half chapters on Babylon and her destiny. In 17, what's laid out is the vision of the woman and the scarlet beast and the angel's interpretation. Chapter 18 hits us straight between the eyes with the unflinching judgment of Babylon, or maybe 
better between the ears. If we keep in mind that the scenario of John being read live to a congregation from the front to the back end of the manuscript. The central images and the theological motifs here are splendor, wealth, and power of Babylon as Rome and the justice of God's judgments. There is a good question among some commentators as to whether the whole scene is conceived of in terms of a universal courtroom in which a class action suit takes place. Plaintiffs on the one side are Christians together with those who were killed on the earth in 1824. The defendant is Babylon as Rome, who is charged with murder in the interest of power and idolatry, and the presiding judge is God. Babylon as Rome loses this lawsuit and is therefore lamented and mourned by its associates, while the heavenly court and the Christians rejoice over the justice they have received. In pronouncing the sentence against Rome, the judge has acknowledged their legal complaints and claims to justice, and this sentence is to be carried out by the beast and the ten horns, the divine henchmen. That's one reading of chapter 18. But it's clear that the story shifts from 17 to 18 from a picture of this magnificent Rome flaunting its wealth and its power to a scene of catastrophe. The great heavenly angel announces Babylon's fall. A new heavenly narrator comes in and cries out, come out of her, my people, with a double prophetic oracle. Then it's followed by a series of dirges and laments over Babylon, which climax in this prophetic call to praise that looks forward to the hymns of chapter 19. Then the chapter ends with this hurling of the millstone into the ocean and a summary statement of Rome's indictment. It was murder. I don't know how you feel about cities and about your urban citizenship, but at this point in John's account, I think we are called to reflection. We are, after all, an urban species, profoundly more so than the people of John's apocalypse. At the heart of this text, we read an urban dualism between the great Babylon and the new Jerusalem. And it's a true dualism. John doesn't allow much room between them for continuity or overlap. They represent the extremes of the continuum. There's an audience listening to a reading, the fall of Babylon leaves us gasping. It's portrayed as the near instant collapse of empire, as monarchy and markets and immorality suddenly lie smoking in a pile of decadent rot. Foul, filthy, shouts the angel again and again. And then the heavenly narrator jumps in, get out while you can as the people of God. It's almost like suddenly we're back for a moment in Egypt with pestilence and plagues and fire in the unmitted dissolution of an empire capital. Babylon's friends and business partners, the kings, the merchants, the sailors stand aghast and weep. So how are we 
to absorb this sight, this kind of pain, this desolation? Are we to protest like Abraham in Genesis? God, will you sweep the righteous away with the wicked? Is this dramatic liturgical performance calling on its audiences for a particular role? Did the first audiences to this do as they were bidden and cheer and stomp and applaud? Or maybe they wept for a relative or friend who they perceived might not have made it out of Babylon. Did they protest the harshness of the judgment? At a certain point in my international development work, I was given a new assignment. I was to build a team, and I was to explore and define the phenomenon of urban poverty and urban development. As a team, we spent uh, many months walking the favelas and the slums and the shanty towns of cities all over the world. We listened, we gathered stories, we observed, we hired statisticians, we crunched the data in places like Bangkok and Kolkata and Delhi and Nairobi and Phnom Penh, even in Chicago and in LA. On rainy days, we squelched through rivers of mud in slums. We begged permission from drug lords to enter their favelas. Our team interviewed girl-child prostitutes and their traffickers. We listened to the stories from slum pastors, slum priests, and imams. We visited HIV clinics, child-headed households, eager, excited entrepreneurs, it was one of the richest and most humbling experiences of our lives. Well, what did we learn? Among, as you can imagine, the many, many lessons, let me leave you with one that has something to do with Revelation 18. We learned that the poor read the scriptures from the margins in ways that you and I in the top billion do not comprehend. We discovered people in every slum with deep dignity and resilience, people with a passion for well-being, and they wanted the downfall of their Babylon. We learned that God was in their city, in their slum, and God had always been there. That's what they told us. There wasn't a single slum or shack or market kiosk, not a tented refugee city, where the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was not embedded. I think in some ways that John is telling us that the city can be hell or the city can be a crucible for the gospel. When the city is hell, like Babylon, and you are on its margins and under its thumb, you will rejoice probably when it's gone. But when the city is a place of good news, a new Jerusalem being discovered, then even slums can generate urban communities of hope. At, Re at minimum, Revelation 18 is a call for all Christians from the first to the 21st century to wake up and get out while you can. John tells us we are in danger of sleepwalking through our cities of Babylon without any sense that we are in particular danger. How do you and I receive that message? Well, perhaps there is 
a sobering question that Revelation 18 leaves for us. How is it possible for you and I, as the new kings and merchants of the planet, to hear this apocalypse? Who in our world perhaps views us as Babylon through the eyes of John's apocalypse? After all, we as global North Christians have joined forces with the top billion. We are not on the margins. And we have built a global empire of vassals to meet our demands. Our merchants scour the earth every day for us. Our kings deliver pearls or any bauble we want by drone or by courier. Our vassal ships, our vassals ship kiwis, strawberries, Kobe beef to us in the middle of winter from any corner of the planet. Are we recreating Babylon, perhaps, on a global scale? And in this vast commodification of life, so available to us via our hands on the levers of globalization and wealth in the global north, do we cease to need the triune, the cosmic, and the imminent God? How does Revelation 18 read us and our city? May God make us uncomfortable with Babylon and worthy of the new Jerusalem. Amen.